Do you want a politically incorrect gateway to a real history education? Then go to mclanahanacademy.com. That's mclanahanacademy.com. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 160. Are you ready to think locally and act locally? Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Before we get started, just want to remind you, if you like this podcast, please share it around on social media. You can find me on social media on Facebook at Brian McClanahan, on Twitter at Brian McClanahan, and also my YouTube page at Brian McClanahan. You can find all those things by going to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. At the top of the page, you get all my social media buttons. You've also got the opportunity to give me an email address, and I will give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. And of course, you can always support the Brian McClanahan Show by going to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep the lights on, help keep the podcasts going. You can also support the Brian McClanahan Show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to sign up. I will have another class coming out in the spring. Late spring, it's going to be on a topic you're going to love. So you're going to want to sign up for that because I will be sending out some coupons and some other things or some discounts so you can get a better deal on it when it does come out. And you're going to want to do that. Also, you can support the Brian McClanahan Show by going to learn, T-R-U-E, learntruehistory.com. That's my affiliate link for Liberty Classroom. You can sign up there and you can get 20-plus courses of great stuff by great faculty members. It really is the most bang for your buck on the internet in terms of an educational website from people you trust like yours truly and then of course you can also get your mcclanahan academy gear or i'm sorry brian mcclanahan show gear excuse me at redbubble.com maybe i'll do some mcclanahan academy gear at some point too but redbubble.com where you get all your brian mcclanahan show stuff my new logo as i said on twitter my t-shirts are soft my logo is hard you're going to want this stuff and if you get those uh, things t-shirt coffee cup wall clock, I don't care what it is, send it me on social media and I will retweet it. It'll be great. So I'd love to see you with my with, uh, Brian McClanahan gear. That would be just fantastic. All right. All of that said, let's talk about the topic for this podcast, for this episode. And now that we're wrapping up a semester, and I just finished with my students uh, for this year and for the spring semester, but at the end of the semester, we always get to, whether I'm doing Western Civ 2 or whether I'm doing U.S. History, we always get to a topic that I think is essential for understanding U.S. History in particular, and since it's and when you get to 102, the United States becomes the player in, in Western civilization, but it is a topic that really defines the 20th century for the United States, and if you look at U.S. History, there are three definitive periods in American history. The first, of course, is the founding period, and that takes you up through the Federal Republic up through 1861. That is Washington's America, that's Jefferson's America, and of course you have the Nationalists putting pressure on that Federal Republic in that, in that time period, but the Federal Republic remained up until 1861. Then you have Lincoln's America, and I think that the historians who try to say there's, a, there's continuity between Lincoln and say, the founding generation, only in a sense that Lincoln was a nationalist like other members of the founding generation were. But certainly you have a new America being created in 1861. The Republicans were very open about this during Reconstruction. They were creating, recreating America. They were creating something entirely new. And so then you have Lincoln's America up until the end of World War II. And the reason I say that is because even though you had this 
headlong rush into nationalism. And Lincoln, of course, was uh, doing terrible things to the United States Constitution during the war. You had, and, and of course, during Reconstruction, you had the Republicans running roughshod over the Constitution. But after that point, as, as when Congressional Reconstruction ends in 1877, the next several presidents are different. Uh, they're, they're different, uh, and they are not Lincolnian in their use of executive power. That is until you get to Teddy Roosevelt in 1901. And certainly there is continuity between Roosevelt and Lincoln uh, in terms of the way they view the executive branch. And then uh, moving forward, you certainly get into then Woodrow Wilson and Franklin Roosevelt, but America itself was still resisting. You still had the last gasp in so many ways of federalism up through the Great Depression into World War II. You had the Conservative Manifesto, for example, during the Great Depression, the late 1930s. You still had people talking about states, state powers, federalism. These were still major issues, even in the Progressive Era, and even in the period of time where you started having much more centralization of the American government. The states were still able to do things that they can't do now. And then you get to the post-World War II period, and this is the, the topic that I focus a lot on in Western Civ and, of course, in American history, and that is the Cold War. The Cold War is, in many ways, I think that when historians go back and look at this particular period of American history 200 years from now, they are going to say the Cold War lasted longer than uh, the 1991 cutoff when the Soviet Union falls apart. So it lasts longer than 1945 to 1991, and here's why. The War on Terror is simply a byproduct of the Cold War. When you look at these things in terms of military history or diplomatic history, we're still living in the byproduct of the Cold War, the aftermath of the Cold War, and the Cold War created the situation that we have in terms of foreign policy today, without question. Now, I talked about a little bit about this in the podcast entitled The Long War, and I got into Bobbitt's book, The Shield of Achilles, and how we're looking at the history and the long durée and the long period, the long view. You get a much better perspective on things. But the Cold War, like the American War for Independence, like the War for Southern Independence, had a tremendous effect not just on diplomacy or military policy or even domestic policy coming from the central authority or the states, but it also had a tremendous impact on pop culture. And this is actually the part when I get into this particular section of American history that I love to talk about. I love to talk about pop culture beginning in the 1940s because in so many ways, when you look at pop culture from the 40s into the present, at least in through the, you can say through the 1980s, but then again, as you look at the war on terror and how that's playing out, and it's still a byproduct of the Cold War. When you look at pop culture, it is all influenced by a Cold War lens. So you start thinking about the 1950s, and uh, when you look at pop culture in the 50s, and what Americans were thinking about in the 50s, you, you already had the beginnings of the space race. Of course, you had the Korean War, which is certainly tied in to the Cold War. You, can't, you don't have the Korean War without the Cold War. You have the beginning of the nuclear age. You have films dedicated to this new nuclear 
age and how to wrestle with that as a citizen and, and uh, you know, massive uh, retaliation, as Eisenhower called it, mutual assured destruction as we get into the 1950s when we start talking about hydrogen weapons and what that can do and what that can do to a city or to a population. And people were now having to deal with this element of the Cold War, which really does change everything when you talk about diplomacy and military uh, history. But certainly when you look at pop culture, not just film, but also books, the way that we viewed social issues in America, I think, is in many ways tied into the Cold War. Because, you see, we had this perception of the Soviet Union. And, of course, this also came out of World War II and what the, the Nazi regime did to displaced persons and Jews and others uh, in the latter stages of World War II. And then you had this push after that's over from Americans, the World War II generation, which was certainly the people who were fighting the Cold War, to make America different than what they saw as totalitarianism in other parts of the world, whether it was the Soviet Union, whether it was Nazi Germany, it doesn't matter. They were using similar terms. We talked about equality, but in, in so many ways, what they were talking about more or less in the 1950s was really liberty from totalitarianism. You look at Orwell's, and Orwell was not, Orwell was not an American, British. But when you look at the big brother, that's Joseph Stalin. And so you started having this reaction to totalitarianism, and that would carry out in various social issues. It was now wrong to take groups of people and tell them they could or could not do something from the central authority. Centralization became the key to fighting the Cold War. So whether it was the central government coming in and saying you can and cannot do these type of things. Uh, in terms of social policy, domestic policy, or foreign policy. That was certainly part of the Cold War. And then you look at things like music. Uh, just like after World War I, you had the Roaring Twenties. In the Roaring Twenties, you had a breakdown, beginning of the breakdown of various conservative norms of the 19-teens and even before that. And so you had the flapper women, which, again, it's... It, you look at the flapper phenomenon, and that was a very small percentage of the population. But still, because of the popular press, it seemed to be every woman was a flapper. Or if you look at prohibition and you look at alcohol consumption, uh, most, most Americans were still law-abiding citizens. Though you did have the rise of moonshining and bathtub gin and other things, and so uh, that became a big business, particularly in the South. But that, that said... You have perception and reality. But one thing that people were thinking about in the 1950s, I think it's very clear, because of the prospect, you had duck and cover, and uh, you have to get your uh, you know, civil defense authority, and you're seeing uh, this general fear beginning to take hold of America. What happens if there's a bomb, if there's an attack? What do I do? And so Americans started looking at things, well, we got to have some fun. And so music, music, rock and roll, became a certain part of that. And same thing when you get, and I'll discuss this as we move forward, but became a, a real part of that. And so in so many ways, the, the uh, hoop skirts or poodle skirts, these kind of things, poodle skirts is more accurate, the poodle skirts of the 1950s and the sock hops and uh, rock and roll and uh, all of this stuff that came out of the late 50s was in many ways a reaction to the tension of the Cold War. And the way that we were looking at social issues in the 50s 
was a reaction to the totalitarianism of the Soviet Union and the imposition that totalitarianism put on citizens. And as you get into the 50s, of course, there was a very famous, as, as Nikita Khrushchev came to the United States, and he met with Richard Nixon when Nixon was vice president. Here, in the, here we are, 1950s. And they went to a Sears. So, right, so you have consumerism, which is also taking hold of the 50s. Your two Ford family, your department stores, all of that was a reaction to the Cold War. Why? Why was it a reaction to the Cold War? Because look at all the stuff we can buy. Now, certainly there was consumerism before that, but it really ramped up in this period because we wanted to show those commies what a capitalist economy can do. What we can do, we can buy modern appliances. Why we go to the Sears and we can, and Richard Nixon takes Khrushchev and he says, look at these appliances. Look at what this can do. Look at what we have in America and how we can save our women from having to do a lot of work and they can go get a job. And Khrushchev's, Khrushchev's response was really interesting because he looked at Nixon and he said, why would you want your women not in the kitchen and having babies? You see, Soviet Union represented in some ways a traditional order that Americans didn't want to have anymore, but, and it was totalitarian in that the state was directing this. But I re, you read a lot about this, how when the Soviet Union fell, you had people that were very upset about that in Eastern Europe in some ways, not because they got rid of the totalitarian government. They were happy about that. But what they weren't happy about was the imposition American culture put on them because what they got was disco music or rap music, they got drugs. Uh, they got cowboy movies. They they saw the their their culture destroyed by the West because Western society was pushing this modernity that was totally different from what they had. And certainly the Cold War was also driving that as well. Look how great we are. Look at all the stuff that we can do here. Look at how our women are this or our other people are that. Or or look at the things we have. We were losing conservative traditional American society while we were still talking about conservative traditional American society. It was being ground down by this Cold War, uh, this Cold War footing that we were on. Because you had to show the East what the West really was. It had to be this shining, decadent place to get them to break that anchor that or, or the military imposition that the Soviet Union was. And I think there's a certain part of that. So then you get into the 1960s, and really you can't say the 60s started until you get the escalation in Vietnam with the Kennedy administration. Of course, Kennedy being World War II generation, of course, we're looking at a young group of people now. you got Kennedy's young. And of course, Nixon wasn't much older than Kennedy, just looked older. But you got these young people that's kind of hip to like Kennedy. And, and so it's a changing of the guard, so to speak. you got these new people in power, and you have, though, at the same time, and Kennedy was an ardent cold warrior, and that required, again, a certain amount of centralization. But it also required American intervention in far-off places of the world. So we already had the Korean War between 1950 and 1952. And where, look, you get to the 1970s, and I'll talk about how that Korean War becomes important again. You get to the 60s, and now we have the Vietnam conflict. We have escalation in Vietnam. We have... The Kennedy administration taking out the leader of South Vietnam, machine gunning him to death in a car. Now, of course, the Kennedy administration denied this. If you want my lecture on that, you can go out to that Learn True History, and you can take the second half 
of the U.S. history course there, and I do the lecture on Vietnam. So you've got that going on. And of course, Kennedy's assassinated. And now you have Johnson. Again, another ardent cold warrior. But at the same time, a person who believed that America had to be something different from the Soviet Union. That difference was the way that they viewed and used the government to level society. Uh, in, in a way that was palatable for the capitalist vision of America. Now, anyone with a brain could see, well, what we're doing here is just soft Marxism. That's it. But it wasn't sold that way. It was sold as a war on poverty. We are too rich to have people who are poor. So we're going to use the government to level things out. We're going we're gonna to take taxes and we're going to level things out. We, we are Americans. We can't have discrimination. We can't have these things. This is un-American. To have discrimination. That's what the Soviet Union does. That's what the Nazis, that's what the totalitarians do. Not us. Not us. So the Cold War was getting into people's mind. And, oh, yeah, we, we got to do these things. And so that was certainly a byproduct of the Cold War. You, you can't have in many, you can't ha cannot have the civil rights movement without the Cold War. And so looking at this just from the top down, this is what's happening. And then, of course, you have the Vietnam conflict, and you don't have the hippie generation without the Vietnam conflict. So this certainly, you don't have the counterculture without Vietnam. You even saw the beatniks coming around the late 50s, but didn't gain a whole lot of traction until you got to Vietnam and you started seeing that, well, we don't like this war. We don't want to go off and fight. We have a draft. Uh, and you start seeing music, the musical part of that, which was, you know, Jimi Hendrix, the San Francisco sound, uh, the Mamas and the Papas, the Doors, the Grateful Dead. I mean, you start having all this stuff come out of the 60s. You start seeing outlaw country, a reaction to the very conservative, buttoned-up kind of country that you had. You start seeing metal in the 1960s, Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin was just a hard blues band. They were still you know, hippies, but they were playing a harder version of blues music. And that's how Black Sabbath actually started out, too. Same thing, Ozzy Osbourne. Rolling Stones started as a blues band. So there's, you have that British invasion, you have the Beatles, you have all of that going on. And this is certainly part and parcel of the Cold War because people are thinking of things in a different way, thinking of things in a different way. They're thinking of anti-war. You know, John Lennon later becomes anti-war. You get bed peace, hair peace. You know, I've always wondered what that meant. What does hair piece mean? I understand what that might mean for, um, you know, a toupee. But what does hair piece actually mean? You know, there's this very famous image of, of uh, John Lennon and Yoko Ono in bed with their recording equipment, their little guitar, little tape recorder with some flowers. And it says, hair, has, says bed piece, hair piece. What does that mean? What does hair piece mean? I guess grow your hair and have peace. Or is it a toupee? I, I, I'm not certain. Still, we have this, this cultural creation that's fostered by the Cold War, the space race in the 1960s, the early 60s. You don't, have, you don't have the space race without the Cold War. And, of course, that creates an entire culture in of itself. And then you get to the late 1960s, and you've got 2001, A Space Odyssey. You've got the growth of science fiction, which began, of course, before the Cold War. People thinking about you know, science fiction and science fiction stories began in the 19th century. But certainly the Cold War put a new emphasis on it because 
we were racing technologically to try to beat the commies all the time. And so we're creating rockets that we can launch people in outer space. And we're creating computers because we want to be first to do these things. We want to beat the commies at these things. So the computer age was created by the Cold War. The age in which we live where I can do this podcast and then I can put it on the Internet is created by the Cold War. The Department of Defense creates the Internet. I know Al Gore said he did that, but it was the Department of Defense. It was an intercommunication thing. So we've got, uh, and that comes later, of course, but we've got these things developing. Uh, you've got people, you know, uh, checking out, uh, you know, dro- uh, dropping acid and checking out. You've got uh, the counterculture resisting the Vietnam War. It's uh, we're, we're we're looking at uh, a a a Cold War situation here. And that doesn't even, in the 1950s, I forgot to mention the Middle East and how we created that whole mess that's going to lead to the war on terror, but that's part of the Cold War, too. So the 1960s, which bleeds into the 70s, into the early 70s, is certainly part of the Cold War. You don't have it without it. And then you get to the 70s, and you've got the situation in the Middle East, which is created by the Cold War. You had the CIA intervention in Iran with Mossadegh and, and the United States overthrowing the prime minister of Iran, which created the very militant atmosphere that eventually led to the uh, overthrow of the Shah in 1979. You've got Afghanistan with the Soviet Union in the 1970s. And, of course, in the 1970s, the United States is funneling weapons into Afghanistan through Pakistan, and they're creating the Taliban, which, of course, is going to lead to Osama bin Laden. So you have all of these things working within the context of the Cold War. And, of course, in the 50s, uh, the United States will then start uh, cozying up to uh, the Shah of Iran, and he becomes our guy, and we cut deals for oil. Then, of course, you get to the 70s, and as that all starts to fall apart, then you have the energy crisis in the 70s and OPEC, and all of that's created within the context of the Cold War as well. We had to have an ally in the Middle East, and that became Israel. And so all of this is part of the Cold War. You can't get around it. It's the American empire. That's The Cold War is, it should be more accurately said, this is the American empire. And it's resistance to that empire as you had a large imperial force as well, the Soviet Union, which was in many ways just a hollow shell. But certainly it was the adversary that the United States needed to justify all of these unconstitutional things they were doing and very expensive things they were doing because we needed that. And it created a, a, a one-people kind of mentality, an American nation. We're all the same. We're all good guys. We're all fighting the commies. doesn't matter who you are. We're fighting the commies. So you get to 1976, and you've got Jimmy Carter. And uh, you know Carter changes the direction. Nixon did, too. I mean, Richard Nixon with detente during the early 70s and the way he was looking at the Cold War and playing peacemaker. And, uh, of course, then he had to resign uh, in, in uh, 1973 or 1974. And uh, so you had Gerald Ford. But, you know, you get Carter. And Carter, of course, is seen as very soft in the Cold War. But at the same time, Carter's having to deal with Iran. Carter's having to uh, reinstate the draft. Carter's having to deal with the, with the Soviet Union in the 1980 uh, Summer Olympics in Moscow. We boycott those Olympics. Of course, you also have 1980, the Winter Olympics, where we have the Miracle and Ice. So you still have this being played out. And then you get to the 80s and, of course, Ronald Reagan. And Reagan was intent on winning the Cold War. But pop culture and, and the, the, the interesting thing about pop culture when you get to the 70s, particularly the 80s, 
You look at the 80s pop culture and some of the things that were happening. First of all, beginning in the 60s into the 70s and then early 80s, you had all the James Bond flicks. You don't have James Bond. You don't have Ian Fleming and James Bond without the Cold War. It's impossible to have it. Now, I know Bond is MI6, but certainly these books were very popular. And then the films, of course, extremely popular in America. That's the Cold War. So it was affecting pop culture. Everyone wanted to be a spy. You have, in terms of toys, you had G.I. Joe. Now, G.I. Joe was, you know, also World War II, but certainly uh, fighting, whether it's the Nazis or the commies, G.I. Joe was a, was a figure that boys could rally around. Uh, and when you got to the 80s G.I. Joe, and you look at how G.I. Joe, the enemy of G.I. Joe was a group called Cobra, and Cobra was certainly based on the commies. I mean, the, the imagery... Uh, some of the names of the toys and the figures, all of that was based on uh, the commies. In so, in the, they had the Hiss tank, for example. Now, Hiss, of course, a snake makes that, but also you had Alger Hiss. And so uh, I mentioned that you know, back in the 1950s with the House Un-American Activities Committee and how that was such a big issue and got to root out commies. You had the creation of the Berlin Wall. You had the U2. I mean, think about one of the most popular bands, in the world in the 1980s was U2, named after the U2 spy plane incident with Gary Powers. And this is why they call it, this is Cold War. This is Cold War stuff. And then you look at some of the films that came out in the, in the 80s, which I think some of these are just uh, fantastic, but you had uh, Rocky IV, right? I mean, Rocky IV, uh, who didn't want to go? It's one of the few films I've ever seen in the movie theater where people were actually cheering at the end of the movie and rooting. And one of the, it's it's a it was an incredible thing to see. People were clapping and cheering, uh, and so you had that. Of course, you had Red Dawn, which I think is one of the more unappreciated films of the Cold War era, uh, and they remade it later on. But it was not, nowhere as near as good as the first one. Uh, who didn't want to go out and you know go to the mountains and fight some commies at that point? Uh, and then you had all these other Cold War inspired films in the 1980s. Uh, there were there were all kinds of them. Uh, War Games, for example. I mean, a great film uh, with Matthew Broderick. Uh, you, Disney produced uh, a film entitled uh, Night Crossing, which uh, was about uh, these people, it was based on a true story, trying to get out of uh, East Berlin into West Berlin. I mean, you had all this interesting kind of stuff happening. And then you had the musical element of it in the 1980s. I think in so many ways, the glam metal movement and some of that stuff and the pop music that was very upbeat was certainly a reaction to the tension of the Cold War and the prospect of nuclear war. Uh, television shows, MASH. I mentioned the Korean War is going to come back. You don't have MASH without the Cold War. That's the Korean War. Uh, so, I mean, that's great stuff. You have all, in the mid-80s, you started seeing all these Vietnam films come out that people enjoyed. Platoon and Full Metal Jacket. Uh, and so you had that element of the Cold War coming back in the 80s. Uh, you cannot get around the Cold War culturally. You cannot get around the Cold War politically. It was a key part of the 1980 and 1984 presidential campaign. And everyone, if you weren't a Cold Warrior, you weren't going to... I mean, now, you can't, I can't say you weren't because you had people that were sympathetic to the Soviets, like Edward Kennedy winning elections, but that's because these were a bunch of pinkos up in New England at the time. But certainly, uh, you had to be, as a presidential candidate, you had to be a Cold Warrior because the majority of Americans viewed America as this imperial nation. Now, they didn't say that, but as a strong centralized empire and that you needed to fight the Cold War. And so everything was encapsulated within that event. So again, I, I think if you look out 
100 years from now, 200 years from now, when we're all dead and gone, we're dust in the wind, and uh, we're pushing up daisies, historians are going to look back, and they're going to say the Cold War was bigger than just this period of time when we were fighting the Soviet Union. They're going to say the war on terror is part of the Cold War because the Cold War created it. The Cold War created the CIA. The Cold War made the CIA what it was and the Dulles Brothers. All of that would not have been possible without the Cold War. The Cold War created the split in conservatism in many ways. Uh, There's so many things when you're looking at the Cold War. And we still think in these terms. Those that still want to hang on to the strong American empire. Those that want to have uh, America lead the world. They're Cold Warriors is is what they are. They're not Teddy Roosevelt. They're not even Franklin Roosevelt. They're more like Harry Truman or Dwight Eisenhower uh, or Ronald Reagan. I mean, this is what they are. When conservatives, quote-unquote, conservative Inc. talks about internationalism, they're, they're Reaganites. They're, they're Reagan wanting to lead the world. And we can say that's a good thing or a bad thing. I mean, these are, these are debatable positions and how all this stuff worked out and whether it was good or bad. But certainly it's part of it. My point in this podcast is to talk about where does it come from? Where does this pop culture come from? Where does this uh, domestic policy, foreign policy, where does it all come from? And the war on terror would not have been possible. Our modern society would not have been possible without the Cold War. The the computer age. uh, All of these things we look, the way we look at things now, the, the, the new left rose out of the Cold War as a reaction to... In so many ways, what they were doing is supporting a much more Marxist-influenced society. Now, they, were, they believed in a strong central authority, but to do other things than what the uh, you know, soft New Dealers wanted to do. And it's certainly part of saying, we're modern. These are the things we're going to do. We're not going like, to be repressive like the commies. We're not going to do that at all. We're going to be different. We're going to do this, and what we say is the name of liberty. We all know it's not real liberty and what they're doing, because if you oppose it, they try to smash you down. But we're going to do this in the name of liberty. So it's certainly a byproduct of Cold War, without, without question. You cannot have these things without the Cold War. So I love talking about the Cold War. And again, this was a, uh, a very brief overview on what I actually do in class and some of the things I get into. But... Um, Think about that. When you think about the Cold War, it's bigger than just we're fighting the commies in the Soviet Union. It's bigger than just proxy wars. It's bigger than just uh, massive retaliation, Dwight Eisenhower, even Harry Truman, and what was going on there. And, and uh, It's bigger than the Kennedy or Johnson administrations. It's bigger than the Nixon administration and the ending of the Vietnam War and the Nixon doctrine. It's bigger than Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan. It's not just politics and diplomacy and foreign policy or military policy. It is a cultural phenomenon that still affects us to this day. If you like 80s music, if you like 80s movies, not only that, we've had Cold War movies after the point. And you can't have, I mean, pop music is so influenced by, I mean, if you just like pop music in general, it's the Cold War. And some of the themes we're looking at there, modernity, uh, liberty, and in, in I already had a podcast on liberty, different types of liberty. So all these things are going on, and it's just a fun topic. And uh, you know, look at it in that way, and I think you're going to get a lot more out of the Cold War. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClanahan Show.